Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. a lot to say this morning, so I'm just going to jump right in, if that's okay with you. I guess it doesn't matter whether it's okay with you. I'm just going to do it. Uh, But let me remind you uh, briefly of illustration I used last week to set up uh, what Jesus is doing here with the law. Um, Hatred in our hearts, I said, is akin to murder because hatred is merely embryonic murder. Even though it may not have yet given birth to uh, the actual act of murder, hatred is the embryo of murder. The same is true this week. Lust is embryonic adultery. So by the letter of the law, perhaps we have not committed adultery, but by the heart of the law, we are all adulterous. Same concept as last week, and therefore the same outline that I used last week. Jesus is going to do basically the same thing. He's going to diagnose our adulterous hearts, and then he's going to remedy our adulterous hearts. So let's start with his diagnosis. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, before we look at this in depth, I want, I want to make two qualifying statements here. First, I want to remind us of a point I made last week that I think is particularly important to restate this week. Just because Jesus is equating lust and adultery as the same in principle does not mean that they are the same consequentially. And the reason why that's important to reiterate this Sunday is that unlike uh, last Sunday when we looked at murder, Uh, chances are very few, if any, have been impacted by the act of murder. When it comes to the devastation of adultery, however, many here or listening online are victims of its ruin. Conventional adultery is a profound betrayal, the trauma of which is felt for a lifetime. And I want to be sensitive to my friends living in that trauma. I am so sorry that happened to you. I can't imagine the pain that you have felt. And by equating lust to adultery, I in no way intend to dismiss or even minimize your pain, nor does Jesus. He is speaking to the consequences. He is not speaking to the consequences of the two. He is speaking to the intention of the two. And in so doing, Jesus Jesus is trying to rebuke embryonic adultery before it grows and gives birth to the ruin of actual adultery that you have experienced. 
Second, I want to say a word here at the beginning about shame. There is no shame like sexual shame. And too often preachers preach on sexual sin in shameful ways. And ironically, this only drives the hearers back to their sexual sin to comfort their shame. That's where we run. We run to the false lover of our sexual sins to comfort us in our shame. So this room is filled with unique stories of sexual brokenness. And because of that, this room is filled with shame. I must call sin, sin this morning, but I'm going to do my best to do so without weaponizing shame. So hear me say this very clearly at the outside, brothers and sisters. Yes, sisters too in this discussion. That's one of the things that... Um, it's another mistake that made. Whenever this topic comes up, it seems like it's always towards men without recognizing the way our sisters struggle with this, which only compounds their shame because it makes them feel like they shouldn't be struggling with this. Women are the fastest growing demographic of pornography usage, for example, and yet every single one of them thinks they're the only one doing it. A lie that only compounds the shame. So, hear me, brothers and sisters. Our sexual sins are sick, but you are not sickening. Our sexual sins are debasing, but you are not debased. Our sexual sins are expressions of perversions. You are not a pervert. And most of all, most of all, your sexual sins have not disqualified you from the forgiveness, cleansing, healing, and redemption of Jesus Christ. So hold that in mind as we discuss this. Let's dig in and follow his line of reasoning here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So much like last week, Jesus has chosen a law that is widely agreed upon as an ethical norm. Even in our culture of erotic disarray, nearly every, where nearly every sexual ethic is now up for debate, adultery is still viewed as immoral by nearly everyone. We instinctively know it is wrong to break marital vows. But just like last week, Jesus is going to force us beyond the letter of the law and expose the heart of the law. Verse 28, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I spoke at length on this verse during our Good of the Bluegrass conference because according to John Paul the Second's teaching, this singular verse exposes the nature of fallen human sexuality. Specifically, those two words, lustful intent. What has sin done to human sexuality? Loving intent has been replaced by lustful intent. The erotic within us was designed for love, not lust. What's the difference? Love is selfless. Lust is selfish. Love gives. Lust takes. Love views another as a glory to bless. Lust views another as a commodity to exploit. And it's this lustful intent that Jesus says is at the heart of adultery. The word adultery literally means to alter, to change, to distort, to corrupt. Adulterate something from its original design and purpose. And according to Jesus, lust has adulterated our sexuality. And so when we, meet, when we move beyond the letter of the law of breaking marital vows and into the heart of the law 
defined as lustful intent, we recognize, just like we recognized last week, we recognize again this week, we are all adulterers. All of us. You don't have to be married to commit adultery if adultery is defined as lustful intent. So men, women, married, single, all stand condemned according to the heart of the law. But just because this is universally true and has been since the fall, it's important for us to do what we did with murder last week and explore the uniqueness of lust in our time. Despite what many uh, Christians seem to claim, our society is not unprecedented in its sexual perversion. In fact, Roman societies of Jesus' time were far more sexually perverse than ours. But what is unprecedented, and something I spoke of during our conference, is the impact of technology upon lust's exploitation. The internet has made lust so efficient that nearly every historical boundary to lust has been eliminated. Communal boundaries have been overcome. You are alone with your screen in a locked room. Embarrassment boundaries have been overcome. Private browsing and complete anonymity. Content boundaries have been overcome. It is an inexhaustible supply. Accessibility boundaries have been overcome. It's available to you in your pocket as we speak. Preference boundaries have been overcome. Whatever lustful fantasy you seek can be found. And so the point I'm making is that lust is not new, but the technological liberation of lust is absolutely new, and we all are in the heat of it right now. By we, I mean we. Please listen to me. There is no example of cultural moral decay that you can name that is a greater threat than the internal threat of pornography that is ravaging our churches. Some here indulged in it last night and then came to church this morning and it didn't even give you pause. For some, the screen that you use to watch holy worship during the pandemic is the very screen used to feed you pornographic images. Again, I'm not trying to shame you. But we must admit what we have become. It starts there. And what we have become, via the power of technological lust, is a pornified society. We don't even know how to look at each other without the lens of lust. But there is hope. It does not have to be this way. Yes, of course, we will not fully obtain the heart of God's law until we are raised in perfection. But do not believe the lie that you must relegate yourself to the ruin of lust. I say that because it seems to me, in this area of sinfulness, perhaps more than any other, it is clouded by a pervasive hopelessness. That hopelessness is lying to you. It's a lie that only fuels more lust. There is hope. And that's what Jesus offers next. Let's spend the majority of our time exploring his remedy, because it's really important. 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. But what I want to do is organize my thoughts according to three principles that Jesus is offering us here. This is very, very, very important for us, okay? We desperately need help. We desperately need help. So please listen. Everyone listen. But if your life is out of control in the area of sexuality, 
please give utmost attention to the next 15 minutes. I'm going to get really practical. Because I know you don't want it to be this way, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, whom you know is calling you to repent. And I know it's hard. And I know you've tried many times only to fail. So if you were to ask me, Pastor, what can I do? What can be done? My answer is going to be these three principles I'm about to outline from Jesus. You state them up front. Go deeper with each. Jesus is offering a threefold remedy. Examine, external, extreme. Let me show you what I mean by those. First, we examine. Verse 29 and 30 begin the same way. If your right eye causes you to sin, and then if your right hand causes you to sin. And in that phrasing, he dispels a myth that has been perpetuated by a Christian purity culture that I discussed on my podcast this week, if you listen to it. Purity culture treats the female body as the problem and wrongly places the burden of sexual wholeness on women. So the reasoning, if you've been around evangelicalism for a while, the reasoning goes like this. Men are different, i.e. helpless Neanderthals who can't control themselves in the presence of female beauty. So Christian women, in order to not cause your brother to stumble, you should cover yourself, you should watch your conduct, you should do everything you can not to tempt your brothers. So many things problematic in that line of reasoning, not the least of which treating men as the only one who struggle with lust. Again, the largest growing demographic of pornography usage is women. So women hear that purity talk stuff and feel deeper isolation and shame for acting like these lustful men. But the biggest problem is that it places the blame not on my disordered sexuality and proclivity to lust, The blame is the temptation of females. So take the Victoria's Secret store at Fayette Mall. If I were to walk past that store and lustfully gaze at its advertising, where does the blame lie? Jesus is not saying Victoria's Secret, but my gaze. He says, if your eye, Robert, causes you to sin, those scantily clad models didn't cause me to sin, I caused me to sin. And so what this does is places the focus of the struggle where it belongs, on me. And once my attention is directed away from all these worldly temptations that are out there and onto me, then it leads to a process of examination that I'm talking about. If my eye causes me to sin, then I need to examine where my eye tends to go. Lust is universal. But the way lust manifests itself in our lives is unique. I cannot tell you how important it is to personalize lust because it will lead to personal applications that I will get to in a moment. For some here, lust is directed at the same sex, another struggle that runs on shame. For some here, lust isn't even really sexualized. Jesus says anyone who looks at another with lustful intent, that intent typically is sexual, but it doesn't have to be. Perhaps you lust for the attention and affirmation of another, and you enjoy an inappropriate flirtatious game that never gets sexual, but absolutely is fueled by lust. Perhaps you lust for power, and you use sex to gain power. There's zero physical attraction, but they offer a power you desire, and sex is a means to that power. So, 
what I'm advocating for here is a self-examination. How does lust tend to manifest itself in your life? And then, once you examine, you need to recognize that your um, personal internal lust must be addressed externally. So two, external. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It shouldn't have to be stated, but I'll state it. Do not gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. Jesus is using hyperbole again this week to make his point. Here's the, here's the important point he's making. The internal lust of our hearts is remedied by the external habits of repentance. This is so important. It is true that our internal lust is the problem. These disordered desires within, that is the problem. But how do you change the internal? How do you change desires? How do you reorder your heart? How do we reduce the lust that is inside us? External habits. Philosopher James K. Smith has been preaching this for a decade in his writings. He argues with St. Augustine that we are compelled less by ideas and more by our loves. That's true. You are compelled by your loves more than your thoughts. But what Jamie Smith argues is that our loves are formed by our habits. And he is absolutely right. The lust in our hearts can grow and can diminish. That happens by your external choices to feed or starve your lust. I can testify to this personally. When a uh, pornography habit was a part of my life in my early years, my lust was ravenous. met Jesus, made the decision to rid my life of pornography through habits of repentance, and there was and remains an obvious reordering of my internal sexuality. Our external habits form our internal hearts. You are not going to be able to reason your way out of lust. Books are good. You should read them. Therapy is good. You should be in it. Journaling is good. You should do it. But only as a means to empower your external habits of self-denial. And that goes for this sermon too, by the way. You may feel motivated right now. You may feel emotionally convicted right now. But this sermon only works if it leads to changed habits in your life. Okay, so you've examined your lust. You've recognized that internal lust is fought with external habits. Finally, those external habits must be extreme habits. So third, extreme. Here we come to the meaning of Jesus' hyperbole. He doesn't want you to gouge out your eye. He doesn't want you to cut off your hand. But he does want a level of self-denial that feels that painful. When it comes to lust, we are to fight like hell. Those are not my words, those are his. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now don't treat those words in a way he doesn't intend them. Christians who hate their lust, fight their lust, plead for Jesus, forgiveness is their only hope, are not going to hell. But I don't want to diminish the sobering nature of his hyperbole here. Because that's why he has it there. Unaddressed, unrepented, fully indulged lust is destined for the hell of your own choosing. This is severe. 
and it is met with equally severe habits. And the reason why Jesus is being so extreme when he addresses lust, this is the most extreme Jesus gets when confronting sin in the Gospels. The reason why Jesus gets so extreme on the topic of lust is because he recognizes the unique power of the erotic. I spoke at length of this at our conference. Out of every form of love, eros is the most powerful. That was true before the fall. That's true after the fall. And so because of its unique power, it must be addressed with unique severity. Every sin must be addressed by habits of repentance. But this demands a level of severity unlike anything else. Perhaps you need daily accountability until your lust is under control. Perhaps an entire relationship needs to end. Perhaps you have to block a number on your phone. Perhaps social media or even the smartphone has to go. Someone I love, he's not, not in this church and uh, doesn't live in Lexington, but someone I love dearly, struggles with same-sex attraction. His commute to work uh, once took him through an area of town with, with seedy hotels where a lot of activity took place. And he started noticing uh, something stirring within him during his commute. So you know what he did? He changed his commute to work from 10 minutes to 35 to 40 minutes to literally drive around an entire area of his city. That's what I'm talking about here, friends. That's what Jesus is talking about. Get legalistic. It's not legalism. Legalism is when you believe that these extreme habits justify you before God. They don't. Legalism is when you take your extreme habits and you demand everyone else follow those. That's Pharisees. That's not what you're doing. What you're going to do with the help of your community is make extreme commitments and follow them with legalistic precision. Okay, we examine. It's external and it's extreme. That's the threefold remedy Jesus is offering our adulterous hearts. That's what we are to do. But you have to want to do it, right? Let me close with motivation behind our repentance. Shame as a motivation will not work. I can shame you in this sermon up and down. It'll work for a few days and you'll be right back at it. Fear as a motivation will not work. I can scare you, try to scare the literal hell out of you this morning and it won't work. Self-hatred as a motivation will not work. I could do the fire and brimstone thing and just beat up on sinners this morning. It won't work. Self-righteousness as a motivation will not work. The only thing powerful enough to combat your lust is love. When Jesus says, cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, he doesn't literally want you to wound yourself to heal your lust because that's his job. By his wounds, you are healed. Brothers and sisters, there is nowhere we feel more guilty, more regretful, and shameful than in the area of our sexuality. Some of you feel not just unloved, but unlovable because of your sexual failures. Some of you feel gross because of your past or present feel like an unclean leper. Well, Jesus touched lepers. And that touched healed lepers. Would you allow him to touch you in this moment with the words of his scripture?
Give me a moment to just speak scripture to your adulterous hearts. Just put down your pens, no note-taking, close your eyes if you want. What does the inspired, infallible word of God had to say to your lust and sexual sins? Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sexual sins from you. Isaiah 1, come now, let us reason together, declares the Lord. Though your sexual sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Isaiah 43, I... I am he who blots out your transgressions, and I will remember your sexual sins no more. Acts 13. Let it be known to you, dear brothers and sisters, that through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sexual sins is proclaimed to you. 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, if you will just come clean and tell the truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sexual sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Matthew 26, when Jesus inaugurated the meal we were about to celebrate, he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sexual sins. Friends, how many times must the Bible tell you before you believe it? Yes, it is true that your lusts are many, but His mercy is more. No matter what you've done, no matter how abominable your actions have been, no matter how ensnared you are in this moment, no matter if you have destroyed your life and the lives of those closest to you, even still, I, as an ordained minister of Jesus Christ, had the audacity to announce His grace is greater than your sins. Now, what you will discover in the sweetness of that news is not just consolation and comfort in the fight against lust, but motivation in the fight against lust. Here's what John Owen says. Bring thy lust to the gospel, not just for relief. Oh, it's found there. Not just for comfort, not just forgiveness, not just for relief. Bring thy lust to the gospel, not just for relief, but for conviction. Look upon him whom thou hast pierced, And say to thy soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace, what can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? What can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? What a haunting question. Our closing hymn says this. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. To get married. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. What will his bride say to the bridegroom whom laid down his life to be married to her? How about I will not commit adultery? And when I do, when I do, I will loathe it and I will repent. I will spend the rest of my life killing the lust that killed my Savior. Let me pray. 
Give us your grace, O oh God, not just as the comfort that we all need in these areas of shame and guilt, but as the motivation. What can we say to our dear Lord Jesus? All we can say is thank you, forever thank you, and Lord, we repent. And we're going to take this seriously. We're going to get help. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to change our habits. We're going to tell the truth. We're going to get accountability. We're going to throw away our phone if we have to. Oh, Lord, give us the grace that leads us to repentance. We love you, Jesus. Help us love you more. In your name we pray. Amen.